Good morning. The uh, Bible reading this morning, the New Testament reading, is from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30. And again, we will hear what, uh, what Rodney uh, mentioned before about Timothy in this passage. So Philippians 2, 12 to 30. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Hopefully you've, hopefully you've got that part of the Bible open in front of you and that's what we're looking at today. So how about I pray as we look at these words in the Bible? Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word in the Bible, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts, transforming and renewing and changing the way we think and the way that we act. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you know that feeling of being in a position where you just need help. You need someone else to step in and give you a hand. I'm sure you know that feeling. Maybe it was uh, when you were trying to move a piano up steps perhaps with just two of you and you're feeling the whole weight of this thing and you just realize I need help. Or maybe it was when you were um, trying to get your six-year-old to eat their broccoli. 
an impossible situation. You need someone else to intervene, someone else to help. Or maybe it was after you had that fall and you're on the floor and you knew there was no way you could get off the floor without someone helping you. Or maybe it was when you couldn't open the Vegemite. I don't know. Some silly examples, but we all know that feeling of being out of our depth, unable to help ourselves, needing someone else. And in today's passage, we have that daunting instruction in verse 12. That instruction in verse 12 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not saying work for your salvation. We know that. It's saying kind of outwork your salvation. But still, it's a command and it's one that can make you feel like you're lifting a piano on your own. However, the instruction in verse 12 is followed by verse 13 and the assurance in verse 13. That actually what really matters is not your efforts or not our efforts, but what God does. It's what God is doing that really matters. And with that realisation comes relief and reassurance and confidence and motivation to keep doing everything we can to live for Jesus. We just this morning baptised Anastasia. We, we did the easy bit, the kind of the sprinkling of the water on her, the external bit, the sign. But the real work is the work that God does in her. And that's the, what this part of the Bible causes us to think on, isn't it? And if you're visiting today, you're thinking, ah, they picked this passage of the Bible for a baptism. And no, we haven't. Because what we normally do here at church is we work our way through a book of the Bible and we've been working our way through Philippians. And this is the next bit. It's our usual practice to step through a book of the Bible in such a way that hopefully helps each of us read the Bible better for ourselves, know our way around it, have confidence to understand the Bible for ourselves. And so as we look at what was read in chapter 2, verses 12 to 30, it's important to keep the context in mind, to understand the context of these words, particularly because verse 12 starts with a therefore. It's pulling in everything that's been said to this point. And so let me do a a brief recap of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. I've said the key verse is of this letter from Paul to the Philippians, the key verse is 1 verse 27, the first bit of that verse, where it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So God led Paul, the apostle, as Paul writes, he expresses his concern for them. He wants them to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that they've received. A kind of more literal translation might be, be citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus or be worthy citizens of the gospel of Jesus. That sort of idea. He wants them to live in a way that shows they understand all the privileges God has done for them and given them. He wants them to be living in a way they grasp all that. Um, And there's many ways that your life might show that you understand the gospel, but what Paul focuses in on, his primary concern is that the Christians in Philippi would be united as they contend, as they stand up for the truth of the gospel. So if you look back at verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together or contending together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
couple of weeks ago, we read uh, a little bit of Acts chapter 16. So Luke, who records Luke's gospel, also wrote Acts. And as you look through Acts, you get the kind of the story behind the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 16, you get a glimpse of the way the gospel came to Philippi through Paul and his co-workers. Um, we got a glimpse of the opposition to the gospel in Philippi, which would help explain Paul's focus in verse 27 and following, his focus on contending for the gospel, standing up for the gospel, because there is this opposition in Philippi. We also saw in Acts chapter 16 how important Roman citizenship was for the people in Philippi, which may explain the way Paul phrases his words. He wants them to be citizens of the gospel, worthy of the gospel. So 1 verse 27 is a key verse in this letter, and Paul wants the Philippians to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And then at the start of chapter 2, it's like he spells it out a little bit further, gets behind the motivation for living this way. He has all those ifs. You know, if you understand God's compassion, if you've experienced God's forgiveness, if you know the encouragement of being united in Christ, and the big then, make my joy complete by being like-minded, being one in spirit, and so on. He wants them to live out a life that is worthy of the gospel. You'll see it in the way they stand up for the truth back in chapter 1 and the way they treat each other, the way they're united in chapter 2. And down in 2 verse 5, Paul urges them to have the same mind as Christ. And then you roll into those amazing verses that read like a song in verses 6 to to 11. Um, 6 to 8 outlines everything that Jesus has done outlines everything that the Lord God has done to exalt Jesus over everything. When you zoom in on verses 6 to 8, you see Jesus' humility. You see his servant heart. You see his willingness to be obedient to God the Father. You see him willing to be humiliated, even to death, even death on a cross. You see his obedience to God laced with humility. Jesus does all that behaves in that way, makes those sacrifices, does all that because in verse 6, he is in very nature God. And in 2 verse 5, Paul goes, have that mind. He wants the people in Philippi to have the same mind as Christ. And so everything Paul says to the Philippians, it's true of all of us who want to be Christians. If you want to be a Christian, this is what you're setting out to do. You're You're seeking to live a life that is worthy of everything that Jesus has done for you. When we do seek to live that way, it'll show. People will see it in our lives. They'll see it in the way that we're prepared to stand up for the truth of the gospel. They'll see it in the way that we treat each other with humility and try to agree with each other and be like-minded. And so that's the context of the passage that we're at today. And verse 12 starts with, therefore, it's pulling all this in, all that I've just explained. Um, You see a little echo of 1 verse 27 where he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence section has been about living a life worthy of the gospel. And the instruction there in verse 12 is for the Philippians to keep doing what they have been doing. They've been obedient. You notice the little echo of 2 verse 8. They have on a very small scale done what Jesus has perfected in obedience. They've been obedient. He wants them to continue that way. He says in verse 12, continue to work out your salvation. So verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that verse describes the Christian life. Um, 
And don't get confused. I pointed this out briefly before, but don't get confused. The instruction is not work for your salvation. It's not saying earn your salvation, which you heard in the words that Eleanor shared before. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We don't earn anything. Jesus is the one who has done everything. He's died in our place. Um, If you do try to earn favour with God or earn your salvation, you're going to stumble. And who could be the perfect person anyway? And even if you could be perfect, what about the stuff you did wrong before you became? Anyway, maybe we should read verse 12, flipping those words around, outwork your salvation, live in a way that shows you understand your salvation, kind of echoes of the first couple of verses in chapter 2. Live in such a way that works out, outworks the truth of the gospel in you. Um, live in a way that is in line with what God has done for you in Jesus. God's made us you know, part of his family. And so live in a way that makes you his worthy children. You're not going to be chucked out of the family even if you misbehave, but you want to live in a way that's pleasing. Outwork your salvation. It's the same idea that you see, I think, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. If, 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 then. Um, I think, though, one of the most common mistakes people make about Christians is they think Christians are attempting to earn God's favour. It's not the case. Um, Thinking that way amounts to simplifying God down to somewhat like a Santa Claus. You know, at Christmas time, all the kids try to be good so they get good presents. I think many people simplify God down that way. Or um, perhaps think of God like a vending machine where you put in your good works so you can hit that button that says salvation. That's not the way Christianity works. That's not the gospel. The gospel is outlined for you there in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus became a man. Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life. Jesus died our death in our place so that we can be credited with his righteousness. Becoming a Christian, it's actually, it's not earning your salvation. It's an act of obedience. It's saying, God, you're God. It's accepting the gift that God holds out to us. And it's a gift that we receive with humble repentance. So verse 12, the Philippians, they're being instructed to outwork this salvation, to work it out, to show it in their lives, um, to show their appreciation of everything God has done for them, and to do that with fear for God, respect for God. And then I think in verses 14 to 16, Paul kind of zooms in on what that's going to look like for them if they can do that. So verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. This is um, like restating everything you've seen in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 in different words. What you've seen in chapter 1, verse 27 through to 2, verse 5, this is like restating it. But the language there in verse 15 where it talks about those who aren't Christian, it's stark, jumps out at you. A warped and crooked generation. What Paul's doing, though, he's just quoting Deuteronomy. So if you've got a a Bible open, you'll see the footnote, Deuteronomy 32. He's just quoting Deuteronomy where Moses is describing sinful human beings. Paul, he's using Old Testament language like he did back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Remember Isaiah the prophet, the comfort language sits behind there. That's where those words come from, warped and crooked generation. They are Old Testament words, but they are still very true, aren't they? Because That's what it means to ignore God. That's warped. To pretend that the God who created you doesn't exist. 
that's crooked. It's not very politically correct to say it, but if you are going to contend for the gospel, well, that's what the gospel's saying. To live without God, it's warped, it's crooked. If the Philippians obediently seek to live out the salvation they have in Jesus, they're going to stand out in a world like that. And so verse 15 continues, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out firmly, hold firmly the word of life. Um, You can hear the apostle's concern for these young Christians in Philippi, a place where there's people who are rejecting the gospel. He wants these new Christians to be worthy citizens of the gospel, standing firm in it, ready to explain it and contend for it and stick up for it, living out their faith in a way that you can see in the way they treat each other, the way they love their fellow believers, the way they have humility towards one another. So in verses 14 to 16, yeah, it shows what outworking their salvation with fear and trembling will look like. And then you've got some more examples in the passage. So in verses 17 to 18, you see Paul's example. He's prepared to give of himself in order to see these Christians in Philippi standing firm, this attitude of putting others before himself. Um, back in chapter 1, he's already said for him to live is to serve the gospel of Jesus. So there's Paul, an example of someone who's working out their salvation outworking their salvation with fear and trembling. There's two more examples in the passage in verses 19 to 30. Um, Paul shows us Timothy, and then he shows, shows us Epaphroditus. So in verse uh, 20, Paul says, Timothy um, shows genuine concern for the Philippians' welfare. He's genuinely concerned for them. Verse 21, he, he doesn't look out for his own interests, but those of others. Verse 22, Timothy is a servant of the gospel of Jesus. You look at that and you think, Timothy, yeah, that's the kind of child you want to have, isn't it? someone who's other person-centered, caring about other people, living for Jesus in everything. And I guess, yeah, that's how we're praying that Anastasia will grow up. Timothy is the kind of person you'd want to be around because he's working out, he's outworking the gospel in his life. He's selfless, living for Jesus. Um, There's another example, and that's in verse 25, Epaphroditus. I'm not aware of anyone calling their kids Epaphroditus, but he's a very cool dude. In verse 25, um, he's called a brother. He's called a a co-worker, a fellow soldier. He's to care for the Apostle Paul sacrificially. In verse 30, he almost died for the work of Christ. That's the kind of other person-centeredness that you'd love to be around, isn't it? That's kind of other person-centeredness that shows someone who is living out, working out the truth of the gospel in their life. Um, You might be sitting there thinking, yeah, I, I want to be a bit more like Epaphroditus or a bit more like Timothy or a bit more like Paul. It begins by humbly accepting the gospel of Jesus, acknowledging that God is God, but that by ignoring God, living like he doesn't exist, you've made yourself God's enemy. And because of that, God sent Jesus as a man to die the death we reserve that we deserve. If you want to be like Epaphroditus, or Timothy, or Paul, it starts by accepting that gospel humbly with repentance. And to be like them continues as we seek to live in a manner that outworks that gospel in our lives, that shows we're living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And yet it's a daunting task. You look at verse 12, that is a daunting task. You can feel the weight of the piano as you think about doing that. Um, But the verse that I've skipped over, skipped around and missed out is verse 13. Come back to verse 13. For it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Without verse 13, you might as well be trying to push a piano on your own. But in verse 13, we know that God is at work. Like with Anastasia's baptism, we did the outer bit, we applied the water, but God is the one who works in her. And so we pray because that's something we can't do. God does it. God is the one who works in our hearts and minds and changes us. And so we pray that God would work in us to humble us, to help us keep repenting. Um, As we seek to outwork our salvation with fear and trembling, we're reassured and we're comforted and we're encouraged and we're motivated. God's work and he can do it. He will do it. And as you look closely at that verse, he's working in us, working in our will and our actions for his purpose. It's all what he is doing. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we think about these things. Um, Next week, we get to the next bit of Philippians. So feel free to come back next week as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are at work in our hearts and our minds. And we ask that you would continue to be working. We pray for those who are not yet living for you. God, please convict them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And for those of us who have repented and put our trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection, Lord, please continue to humble us, cause us to keep turning back to you and to live with Jesus as our Lord in every part of our lives. Lord, we thank you that we know it is your work. And Father, we trust that you will be at work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.